Welcome to Currents, your leading global voice of maternal feminism. As maternal feminists, we are inviting you to join us, using our voices in the public square for the things that deeply matter, our faith, our families, and our maternal identities. The Currents podcast aims to gather women who are deliberate thinkers and women who are prepared to engage as powerful forces for good in our homes, our communities, and our world. Welcome back to this week's episode of Currents. I am Kim Landine, your host here with Carolina Allen and a really, really special guest that we're super excited about. This month, we're still talking about We Believe in God and Are Women of Faith. And today we have Melissa joining us. Melissa, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. My name is Melissa Inouye, and I am a historian at the Church History Department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I also, um, in my former life, I was an academic at the University of Auckland studying Chinese history. So I kind of study religion, women in religion, and this concept of the relationship between charisma and organization, which is basically if people have described religion as trying to keep lightning in a bottle, charisma is the lightning and or, um, organization is the bottle. Uh, and there's kind of a balance between the two. Like if you have too much bottle, you can't see the lightning. And if you have too much lightning, then you break the bottle. So um, mm -hmm. I'm just really interested in that dynamic. And I'm also really interested in interfaith and intrafaith diplomacy. I am a senior fellow with the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy, which has a really cool model for dialogue on really difficult topics. That's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Melissa. We are um, really grateful for your expertise in this area, specifically um, because of our last podcast episode. We talked to Fatima, one of our wave leaders in Nigeria, who's currently experiencing, she's kind of in the throes of a lot of religious, you know, um, contention, you know, happening in Nigeria and actually in lots of areas in Africa, um, where we have kind of a clash of different religious viewpoints. Um, and, you know, with Islam and Christianity and, and there being kind of conflicting points there that have turned violent. Um, so a question that I think, you know, as a transition from that conversation to talking with you, um, Explain a little bit about your ideas on religious plurality and how that can benefit a community a society. What are your thoughts? Well, if it's okay, I'll just give you a little background about um, where I live. So I live in Utah in a house that's right across the street from a wetland park. So it's just like a kind of um, a low-lying marshy area that um, people haven't built houses on because it's low lying and marshy but um wetlands are actually really important in terms of you know the ecosystem and in terms of uh like watersheds in general they you know they clean the water they they do a lot of things and the plants in the wetland are very important and so just because i live across the street from this wetland i've gotten to know a lot of the plants like when i first arrived i just saw this kind of beautiful pond with all these different things, especially these kind of golden headed reeds waving in the wind. And um, the more that I got to know about where I actually lived and what the actual plants were, you know, like the hard stem bulrush and the coyote willow and the curly willow and the white top and all these different plants, I came to learn that this 
beautiful golden headed reed called Phragmite is actually a really bad plant for the wetland. Um, because what it does is it's it's considered an invasive species. It just grows extremely fast and it spreads through rhizomes underneath the ground. And sometimes the roots go like 10 feet deep just for one plant. So um, what happens is, is a stand of Phragmites will come in and it'll just start to spread. And, um, mm -hmm. and slowly it just crowds out all the other plants in the wetland. And, and that creates problems. So in Utah, we have this big lake called Utah Lake. And there's this, um, over in the past 20 years, Phragmites have just taken over the whole lake um, and creating these huge areas of monoculture. And the problem with monoculture is that it, like, there's like all these different plants play a role in holding the soil together and like doing things with the water and providing habitat for animals and plants and birds and things like that. So, um, so the problem with monoculture is that uh, a new invasive species will come in and just kind of take over and those plants and that everyone else needs in the wetland, like the other animals, the other fish, the birds, whatever, they're just not there. And um, mm -hmm. without the birds and the other animals, then that that creates more of a monoculture and kind of creates like a chain reaction where the the wetland is just not healthy and um, and, and and things just the system just starts to fall apart if there mm -hmm. isn't a balance that's maintained. So um, I believe that God created the world, and I believe that you know we can draw from the natural world created by God some principles. And um, just looking at the natural world, it seems pretty significant um, that we have biodiversity. That seems to be the key to making a lot of things work. It creates a sort of really, you know, complexity of life where if one domino falls over, um, there's other dominoes that are set off at different angles, you know, that in different ways, in different places that, that remain standing. And um, it just seems really important. So I believe that God has also created us with spiritual biodiversity. I mean, if you believe in an all-powerful, all-knowing God, it would have been possible for God to put everyone in an environment where they would have the same religious beliefs, right? That's mm -hmm. totally yeah, within absolutely. God's power. Like right. God could just like really would have the power to just like appear to everyone and say, ta-da, like here is the right way. And like deliver the manual to everyone like that's totally possible but obviously that's not what god did and that's not like the system that god set up god's i believe set up a spiritual system with a lot of spiritual biodiversity just as the physical system has a lot of physical biodiversity and and i think the point of that is that um you know, I believe that the purpose of, of our life is to become more like God and, and to become, you know, more, more wise, more loving, more able to understand complexity. You know, God understands immense complexity, like God created the universe. You know, I, I can't wrap my mind around basically anything outside the solar system. It just all seems so big and so complicated. But if we believe in God, then um, creating that God can handle all of that. So, so I think that one of the ways we start becoming, um, better as people is kind of developing our understanding of our fellow beings and becoming a little more mature in being able to understand 
goodness in other people and faith and to see that goodness and, and to learn from other people. And I think that's, um, God has kind of nudged us towards that trajectory through creating a world with incredible spiritual and physical biodiversity. I love that. I remember. I think it's so applicable. (laughs) Yeah. I remember listening to that presentation for the first time and we can link to that original presentation, maybe out of fear of maybe being a little too vulnerable. I remember listening to that and growing up in a religion, which I find is more often the case than not that religious groups believe that they are the religion, the religious group. Um, They are the one, they are the only, this is the path that we follow. And that seems to be a fairly common theme among religious believers. And I listened to this and that never, this idea of biodiversity is something that I was grappling with for years before listening to that presentation and the way that you just explained it, it was so soul nourishing to me. I remember seeing that and just seeing the goodness in both my own personal religion um, and seeing the the goodness in other religions and seeing how they interplayed with each other to create this beautiful spiritual biodiversity that you're talking about. So on a personal note, I really appreciate you sharing this. This is such a needed message in our world today. Um, I think always needed, but definitely today where there seems to be a polarization of religions and a polarization of thoughts and beliefs and a lack of respect for different ideas, which we really need to be coming together more like you just described. So thank you for sharing that. Um, well, I believe- just to follow up on something you said, um, you know, like it's true that a lot of religions, um, you know, believe they have truth and want to share it. And, you know, and, and like my own faith, you know, we're a missionary faith and, and there's nothing wrong with holding on to truth and trying to share truth, holding on to the things that give you joy and trying to share that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. There's, and, and that's actually a beautiful thing about religions is, is it, it makes people, um, it gives people some, some certainties and, and it, it, it helps them access, you know, the things that are real that, that really do make life better. It's just that um, too, it really highlights like our, capacity to choose so there's a preservation of free will and so when you have this missionary heart and you're trying to share something that brings you joy you're giving people an opportunity to think about things deeply and to make choices in their lives and I think that it's I think problems arise when that free will is kind of usurped and things are forced upon others and so I think there's a big distinction to be made between a missionary effort and like a colonization or imperialization right yes absolutely absolutely be able to choose that and also like it's just um we we also have to be able to listen to we don't want to just like broadcast Mm -hmm. right like there's so much truth out there how how can like you know in one one person's life how can it be possible to just kind of automatically absorb all truth like that's that's you know we have a lot to learn everyone has a lot to learn and we can learn so much mm-hmm. from people who teach us in different ways just as we think about in our life like maybe there's different teachers um some teachers who just really connected with us um sometimes when when this this basic idea like be good like people help other people you know when that's presented like in a different way or through a different religious tradition or through someone's different practice you know, that can be really powerful and it can just stick with us at that, at that point in time. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking a little bit about the kind of tyranny that we're seeing globally through the hand of religion. 
um, we're seeing so much violence, so like brutal, brutal, scary stuff happening um, in the name of religion. How do we talk about that? Because for example, Big Ocean Women has attended United Nations conferences where um, this kind of flavor of religion kind of taints all others. And so then policies are being made at a global level that are detrimental to other religions as well. They are getting categorized as this kind of extremist, fanatic, violent, terroristic kind of, you know, and, and, and then other faiths kind of are subsequently, you know, tainted in that same regard. Um, even, even if not physically violent, um, like the word violence is being used as spiritually violent or, you know, something along that line. Like how, how do we, how do you preserve the diversity of religion if there are certain religions that are, you know, using the vehicle of religion to impose all sorts of violence and terror? Like, how do we do that? What are your thoughts? That's a great question. Um, I think the, the easy, not the easiest thing, the, the hardest thing, but also the simplest thing is just instead of kind of withdrawing from those religious spaces and withdrawing our religious views is to kind of lean into that and mm -hmm. but to lean into the things that are to, into the ways in which religion holds together the fabric of societies as opposed to um you know ways in which there there are ways unfortunately in which religious extremism you know tears apart the fabric of that society but, but there are so many more ways in which religion holds societies together and um, keeps people on a life track that is really beneficial and helpful for everyone. So we I love that. I, that. I believe that to be true too. So Melissa, then, for some, thing, oh, go ahead, Kim. So for someone that does not believe that, what are some of the things that you can point to that show that religion can be the thing that holds the fabric of society together? Like if someone's had a bad experience with religion and said, no, this is like, religion is bad you know, that what's done in the name of God, there's more, there's been a lot of evil done in the name of God. Like, what are you talking about the fabric of society being held together by this, by these institutions? What would you say to someone with kind of some of those life experiences? Well, I would say two things. Um, I, I am recalling a time when someone myself, when someone said to me, um, you know, like that, that religious violence is just like, you know, uh, forcing people, you know, to join blah, 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 or people are, you know, these, these very poor marginalized people are joining religions and like, how predatory is that? And um, so that's kind of a, what's called from a, just putting on an academic hat as a scholar of religious history, that's called the kind of deprivation theory of religion, the deprivation theory, um, deprivation theories in general, this posit that people who are deprived people who are poor or marginalized or suffering illness or you know seeking for society those are the people who go for go to religion um because they're lacking something and it they 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 like grasp for religion as a way to kind of fill this big hole um but you know people who are whole w-h-o-l-e and, and not deprived and like kind of in their right mind, like don't have to be religious. That's kind of the, the implication of, of a deprivation theory. So all these religious movements are started by these poor, desperate people. But I think it was kind of um, condescending and um, yeah. kind of 
elitist and and a little not respecting people to like make choices that are like for themselves as grown-ups you know um so so that's the first thing that i would say to people who are like oh like religions are just violent and they like spiritually like you know violently get people to convert there's actually well there there are actually um unfortunately as you know you've mentioned there are like actually physically violent religious groups which do physically get people to convert so so that's bad um but but i i take issue with... we don't condone that by the way just so we're clear like that is yes, not, not good okay. we don't promote violence of religion right. or of any sort but, but there's an op- there's opposing that, side like, to that you know converting to people converting or believing that that also like if you're, if you're a missionary is that spiritually violent i don't think so um because there's you know no one's being forced to do anything and um you know people make decisions based on their own interests their own experience their own judgment so that's the first thing so, so i think i love that. that that rhetoric of spiritual violence sometimes it's a little condescending and then mm-hmm. um the second thing is uh, with regard to like does religion really hold together the fabric of society well this is where i'm talking about like lightning in a bottle so um religion is a is a motive force in many ways for for a lot of social change and social cohesion um both of those things it it is it very influential because it gets a lot of people together behind the same um, in the same room or in the same cause so for example um in india and china the kind of earliest organized groups that we would now call feminists you know, women's groups trying to kind of change women's lot and 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 change the the differentials in um like life opportunities for men and women um those groups were run by christians because they were all reading the same text um they were looking at how jesus treated women in the christian scriptures um in contrast to like the pretty patriarchal roman and jewish systems at the time and and looking at this kind of general ethos of, of equality in the early new testament um you know not not like what we would call equality today you know but but like just radically different from the kind of pre-existing systems and um in these very patriarchal cultures like in india and china in the 19th century the um you know, where women's life choices were severely circumscribed. It wasn't just like, what role or what job are you going to do? There there were, you know, there was a very clear discourse of like female inferiority and a denigration of, you know, the work of women. So, um, and these were women because they were religious, were organized. They, you know, had the same text, they had the same beliefs, they met regularly. And so they became the kind of first forces for for kind of uh, the, the changing and the improvement of women's situation um so so that's a way in which you know just by virtue of connecting a lot of people um that creates those connections and you know there's like so many ways in which people are ideologically connected nowadays it doesn't have to be religion um so i was just thinking about our wave system um the, our waves that come together women achieving vast empowerment together is kind of the idea of our organization. And it sounds very much like that. There are tenets that we believe in. There's philosophies that we believe in. We study, we meet together often. And I love this idea that these groups that do this are the ones that enact change, be that a religious institution or 
and our hopes are wave our wave communities that come together and enact these positive changes for faith, family, motherhood globally. I love that. And I love that analogy. One of the questions I was going to ask you kind of was triggered by that conversation is religion and women. One of my favorite academics on this topic, um, her name is Valerie Hudson. And she talks about some of like the, um, some of the discrepancies in religion and the history with women and kind of some of the the battles that we face with women trying to recognize and understand and come to terms with religious history. Can you address some of that? You're a history, you're a women's history of religious professor. Is that correct? You've addressed that academically as well as currently professionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Valerie Hudson has a very interesting book called the first political order. It's basically this like tome um, okay. <laughs> and, and it basically says the very first kind of political hierarchy, the very first hierarchy, human hierarchy, the first oldest human hierarchy is men over women. And um, and then she also theorizes that um, those kind of nations that have preserved a very stark hierarchy of men over women in which men like kind of the purpose of control is to control women um those countries have big problems they have security problems they have violence problems they have food problems they have economic problems there's all these problems um created because of that Uh, and she can like she like looks at like like a metric you know of like how how many opportunities do women have? How educated are women? How can women participate in the political process? Blah, blah, blah. And, and based on those metrics, you know, it's, it's like very clear. Um, those, the countries that in which women do better are the countries in which there's more security, there's more safety, there's more peace, there's more um, food, you know, there's- Well, more- that initial layer, I, that makes perfect sense. That initial layer of trust isn't there. So it's distrustful of every other layer expanding mm-hmm. from- you know, so you have, you know, all sorts of distrust issues moving throughout, I think. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think I got on a tangent there, because what does that have to do with women and religion? Um, I think it's a, I, I think oh, that tangent was important. Hudson. Yeah, Valerie Hudson. Okay. I think it's an important well, distinction, though. Uh, maybe stop at that for just a second, that there is primal trust that's needed between the sexes. And as maternal feminists, that's one thing that we do push. We definitely carve out a very intentional space. We're recognizing the need for equality amongst all people um, and seeking for love and validation in those basic relationships. But I do think it's important mm-hmm. to recognize that there, there's a need for trust in the basic units of society between men and women predic- or particularly. Um, that trust between men and women creates trust in the home and the trust in the home creates trust in communities and communities create trust in society. Kind of what I'm getting from that. Is that out of line to take it there, Melissa? Is that? Yeah. Well, the thing that I really love about big ocean women is that you meet people where they are and you, um, you don't have like a, like a kind of prescription for everyone in every place that everyone's got to kind of get to or come up to, or, you know, adopt. I really like that. I think that's one of the major flaws of like uh, kind of progressive liberal feminist ideology is that there's this kind of one way to do it, which is the European American, you know, way. 
but that that way doesn't work for a lot of people. Most people in the women in the world don't live in that kind of a situation or in you know in that kind of society. And um, it actually makes things worse life. in some sense, Melissa. Like I, I was just thinking about that. In in many areas, I think the reason why maternal feminine is more appealing and it meets people where they are is because the adverse, like you know, the other thing that's being offered is actually going to pit a lot of women up against a wall where they literally already have very limited access to education. They have, they have kind of, I don't know, the boot of the patriarchy just on their necks already. And to try to inspire them to do some kind of, you know, radically revolutionary thing. And, you know, which is what I think a lot of other more liberal or progressive feminist ideologies would have them do. Um, it just, it, it's impossible. Like they, they are already in a very kind of delicate situation, so to speak. And so I feel that maternal feminism or big ocean women feminist ideology would say, hey, like there's space here for you to still, you know, accomplish everything that is valuable and we'll help you. And you don't have to reject the family. You don't have to reject your maternal identity. You don't have to reject, you know, um, your faith tradition, that those very things can be vehicles for you to achieve so much and to have significant influence to, you know, start begin changing and shifting things in a very kind of sustainable long-term way. It may take a little longer to see changes, but they will come. And there are changes that aren't going to, I, I often feel as though, you know, religious extremists um, are really terrified of women um, because perhaps what they've seen is something that, that you know, um, ultimately dismantles things that perhaps may be precious to them, but I don't think that that's the only way to accomplish things. So I feel as though, you know, it's a bit of a shift through slow and steady means will outplay, you know, the, the radicalization either to terrorism and to squash women's voices and to squash women altogether versus, you know, the, the, the other radical swing on the pendulum with women you know, um, demanding all sorts of extremely progressive, you know, ideas, and that that is what liberation is. So anyway, I feel like there's a way to accomplish to still maintain like this integrity of the fabric of society by, you know, these slow and steady shifts. Um, and I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's definitely. <laughs> Yeah, people who study social movements um, show that that kind of incremental shift is usually the most durable. Uh, mm -hmm. And I guess this is where it brings us to the question of women and religion, because most most of the world's religions tend to center around male symbols, um, male histories, and often male kind of hierarchies. And so the big question for sociologists is why in the heck are most of the, the majority of religious people women? Like, why do they... Why are they so devoted? Um, I'm glad I'm not the only one asking this question. <laughs> None of this is being oh, yeah. studied. 
Yeah, no, it's like a big, it's just kind of basic sociological question. Like, you know, why do women systematically tend to prefer to go for, to be the major, you know, components within these religious groups that are oriented around male symbols and power? That's the big question. And um, one of the answers that I, I would say based on my own like study is that the formal structures of power are not the only structures of power. So for example, um, I'm a cancer patient. And um, as you can see, I have a perfectly good skeletal system and, and, and muscle system. Like I can sit up straight. I've got form. My body has shape. I can like stand up straight, right? But that's like not the only thing that makes a body a body. There's like other systems in the body. Like, you know, there's like bacteria, there's blood cells, there's um, some people believe that one of the things that, that some researchers believe that one of the major kind of influences for maybe cancer prevention or cancer development is the health of the microbiome, which is the bacteria in the gut, like the community of little tiny invisible things in the gut. So there's so much more going on that like maintains the health of, and, and the power of the body than just like the vertical structure right? There's like jillions of other systems in the body that are quite consequential, as I know, because I have a perfectly good skeleton, but something else is like terribly wrong. So just extending that analogy, um, I think when you look at women in religion and the kind of communities that women form within religious, um, you know, with religious um, systems, the kinds of um, ways in which they kind of leverage moral resources that are shared by the whole community to, to achieve their ends, um, the ways in which they have connections with each other, they have networks, they are um, aware of each other in different ways because of this religious organization that brings them together. And so in, in many ways, I think women are part of these systems of power. You, you can't say they're not power, systems of power. They're just not the formal vertical structure. And um, yeah. when we look at those systems of power, it makes a little more sense why women get something out of religion because, you know, that's how they uh, influence the world and it's not inconsequential. I love that. One of the, one of our big things that we try to do at big ocean women is reframe situations, um, take situations and say, okay, this is what the normal narrative is around it. How can we reframe this into a positive um, generative light giving solution? And I think that was a beautiful reframe of religion and addressing often. I think we, we can get stuck up in the vertical structure, that skeletal structure that you were just discussing and recognizing that there are power, what be it theological or social institutions often are the patriarchal male structures and recognizing that there are the different biomes within those structures that really are powerful, that really do can and should and enact change um, for the whole system, for the whole body. And I really appreciate that reframing. Thank you for that. One of the things that you've talked about, um, discussing reframing, you've you've historically talked or talked about the way of openness, um, and how to address some of or how to reframe some of these religious struggles that we face, um, be it in Nigeria or in Iran that we're seeing right now in Christian or in the U.S. or even within our own family structures. Um, can you explain a little bit for our audience what the way of openness is and how it can help lead to more positive um, biodiversity within religion. Yeah, so the way of openness is a dialogue convention set 
developed by the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy, which is led by a man named Randall Paul. Um, he himself is a Latter-day Saint, but his work with other religious groups is very extensive. And um, in the course of mostly dialogues in the Middle East between Jews and Muslims, um, he developed this initial set of conventions. And it's incredible how effective they are when when kind of both dialogue participants are are really signed on to them. Um, for example, in California, as as you might know, in 2008, there were um, there was Proposition 8, which was a proposition to ban same-sex marriage. It was extremely, extremely divisive and um, uh, tore apart the fabric of society, the, the fights over this proposition. And two years later, a group of religious leaders got together to have a dialogue about it, people who had been on either side of this. And they followed these conventions and they had this dialogue and it was incredible. I was, I, I organized this dialogue and I was thinking, you know, there was you know, the Orthodox rabbi on one side and like the, the pastor of the gay church in Los Angeles on the other side. And, you know, I, I thought these people are going to get into the room, they're going to tear each other's eyes out. Um, just like how everyone has done in public since since this thing and during this this campaign, but um, they came out, you know, weeping. They came out embracing. It was incredible, <laughs> and and I, it's just because um, well, the, definitely the, a testament of the power <laughs> of this process. <laughs> right. the, the, the the basic um, premise of the conventions for dialogue here, which which I'll read in, like I'll, in just a second, is that. Um, the, the basic premise is that most people are pretty smart and pretty kind, like pretty okay. They're pretty good people. They're pretty mm -hmm. smart. They're pretty good. They're they want not good things. Like idiots. They're not like trying to destroy society. They're not even trying to destroy you. They're actually pretty good people. But um, when we like get on opposite sides, we can project you know these things onto people and, and see them as our enemies but the idea of the of the foundation is that um way if you try to persuade someone to to come to your own religious ideas to accept your it's because you love them um if you tell someone they're wrong mm -hmm. it's because you think that if they do this other thing then they will be happier or safer or you know whatever um so, so most people try to change people's mind about religion because, you know, because they, they, they care about them. They don't want them to like live in error. And so that this kind of motive can be a good positive mode and it can be okay for people to strive with each other um, with this good motive in mind. So here are the 10 conventions um, for dialogue. So number one, be honest. That means, yeah, just, just be honest. Don't, don't try to deceive people. Be forthright about your motives. Um, be forthright about, how you're feeling the second one is be kind that's pretty basic um you know assume the other person has your your best interests at heart don't try to destroy them you know treat them like a real person respect them three is listen well uh related to that is number four which is share the floor so you know you should only you should rigorously kind of check how much of the time you're taking and don't take more than half the time uh, number five is presume goodwill so again, assume this is a pretty smart, pretty good person who's not trying to destroy you. They're just trying to like help you see something that's really good for them that, you know, to share something with you. Number six is acknowledge the differences. So don't try to gloss over those, um, acknowledge them. Number seven is answer the tough questions. So if um, someone asks you, 
a question that's really hard that kind of may paint your own religion or your own belief or your own practice in a light that shows your warts or the ways in which you're not doing a great job. Don't like ignore that. Just say, yeah, that's kind of hard. (laughs) Um, Number eight, give credit where credit is due. You know, if you, if there's something that the other religion does that, or the other person does it, that, you know, or the idea that you really admire, then like say that. Number nine, speak only for yourself. Don't try to represent your whole religious tradition. Don't feel the burden of, you know, being the spokesperson for like everyone just to speak for yourself and number 10 keep private things private so that's um you you guys are talking about trust that's like the really important thing um it's a it's a place of trust and so um if you share something you know quite personal quite vulnerable then you can have the expectation that um your partner your dialogue partner is not going to broadcast that about you and say i found out that melissa Inouye is not a good mormon after all <laughs> she said blah 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 you know that's that's just not um there just there has to be trust and um when all those 10 things are are together then you can have really incredible dialogues I see these principles being played out both in an interpersonal relationship between my husband and I and other conversations, um, as well as in big ocean and in the greater world. I'm listening to this being like, wow, like I can do a lot better at these things. <laughs> so <laughs> I appreciate, I, I think they're beautiful. And we will link um, once again to these in our show notes to the way of openness. And they have a website that we can provide for some resources because wow, if you can bring if you could bring these principles into international dialogue or into even interpersonal dialogue, the difference that I can imagine that would make you shared watching the difference in these conversations. And I, I'm, I'm honestly interested in kind of engaging in one of these dialogues um, personally. Right. Well, can I just go one step further? And so in addition to having kind of conventions for the actual dialogue, there's also really important kind of pre-dialogue work, which is um, at least once, ideally twice, um, before the conversation, the dialogue partner should meet. They should share a meal um, that lasts about at least 90 minutes. Um, and in just sharing the meal, they shouldn't talk. Um, they, could dis- they can discuss the questions that they want to bring up in dialogue, but they shouldn't have the actual dialogue. They should just um, get to know each other and you know, say, this is what we want to talk about when we have our dialogue. And um, in the course of that meal, um, everyone should answer this question, which is, how did you come to your deepest spiritual beliefs? And and they just answer that um, using the time equally. And that's, that's a really revealing question. And it shows, again, usually how people are you know trying to be good and how they're not dumb. And when you kind of see that in your partner, um, that helps, right, engage with them in, in a better way. And this um, this meal ideally should occur um like a week before the dialogue there's there it needs to kind of um the experience of of that initial kind of pre-dialogue work should has to have these time to kind of like gel um in the minds of the participants so so ideally that's how you do it um i can definitely see the benefit of that it really humanizes people It, it you know brings i think sharing a meal there's something deeply powerful, like spiritually powerful in doing that. And I think allowing that to sit and, you know, for a week so that people can ruminate and, you know, ponder on that experience prior to the conversation is just really brilliant. I love it. I love it. 
And I love the power that it has to really enact change and true change and long-term change that can affect individuals all the way through the greater society. And I can see great value in that. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, We're kind of hitting our time right now for our audience. Melissa, if there was anything, so you, you have an interesting circumstance in the sense that you more than most understand how vulnerable life is and how quickly it can change and how, how soon that we may not be on this earth. Um, And I think that's both a blessing and a curse. What have you learned in your process of faith in dealing with the struggles of life and the struggles of humanity and trying to comprehend them both for yourself and for your family? And what would your suggestions be for those that are struggling in the field of faith and are trying to come to terms with some of the atrocities of humanity? Well, um, I guess I'll say two things. One about like kind of, um, so the, the first thing is that I, my faith has literally saved my life. Um, I had a really scary diagnosis and I, I, I'm not sure, well, I, I guess I can't know because you, you can never know like what the other pathways are. But um, I think one of the reasons why I've been able to beat really bad odds for such a long time is because even when I myself didn't have like faith or hope in myself, there were other people that I could rely on who did. And I think that the body responds to that um, like... I don't think it's really healthy, for example, to be a cancer patient who's like always despairing because I think your body goes in that direction. And there have been so many um, things to just keep my hope and my faith from my faith community that have have literally kept me alive. And in practical ways, my faith community also has kept me alive. For example, in New Zealand, when I ran out of options, um, just because they didn't, um, you know, it's a small country, and they didn't have like the cutting edge stuff that was available in the United States. So I had to move to the United States, but I just couldn't afford to do it. And my, um, my faith community, just people that I knew through mostly through these faith networks, um, just by donating like a tiny bit of money, um, you know, very small donations, but it all came together and it, it made it so that I was financially able to just to leave and to move and do this really, you know, costly international move and, and pay for my health costs. So, that that also like in a practical way just literally saved my life just being connected to a lot of people and then um the thing i'll say like like an on a practical kind of daily living level um the, the, the one good thing maybe about having cancer is that you like tend to not do the things that you don't want to do <laughs> you know like life is too short but, like like this is this winter in utah and like you know I'm just not going to go to work, taking the train, walking through the snow in like uncomfortable thin pants or whatever, or like a skirt with like tights, like nylon. This is too cold. I just, I just refuse to do it. So, so, um, <laughs> and maybe that's silly, you know, and maybe it's like unprofessional. Like I should like dress more formally and like skirt suits, jacket whatever heels but like no I'm just not gonna do it because I like have cancer dang it and like I deal with enough uncomfortable things all the time so if I don't have to do them I'm just not gonna do them so um and and that's practical right well but but then also like uh leads to other things so like it's a lot easier for me to just um 
try to prioritize spending time with my kids. Um, mm. You know, I'm not trying to like be the most famous historian ever. That's like not even on my radar screen. Um, I just want to spend time with my kids. And I found actually that um, that's fine. You know, it's, it's, it's fine. Everything still works out. Like I still have a career. I'm still able to like be involved in the world of ideas. You know, it, mm-hmm. you can like put your family first. And, and and that's and that's honestly where I need to do the most work too. Like that's like my greatest struggle is like being a better mother because I'm like mm-hmm. I have like a really like bad temper, and um I usually like respond with anger when my kids don't do the right thing. So so like that that is like my biggest struggle, and I think it's but it's been fine. Like the other stuff mm-hmm. has been fine. It all works out. So so that's what I've learned, I guess, from from being having a serious illness. I appreciate those comments. That's, you know, we're, we're given the narrative often that you can't have it all. You can't have a career and you can't be in the home and you can't do these things and you can't have great interpersonal relationships. And you are the example of being a fellow at Auckland, having your own doc, like going all the way through your doctoral program, having a family and trying to improve your family situation. You truly do in that sense, have it all. Um, and because of that, you are a sentinel of faith to many that know you. And I know, I know I got to know you online and then through Anne, our, our connections, and then just watching you grow and watching you live life has been very empowering to me. I'm in that faith community and I appreciate you. And I am willing to say that I think people that are great don't do it easily. And I realize that there are struggles and I realize that there are things that you overcome. And I don't think that you're perfect um, in the sense of perfection, but I think you live life perfectly in the sense of always trying to do better, always giving people grace and always, always trying to do what you can do when you can do it. And I deeply appreciate you being on this podcast. Um, I know I have learned a ton from you and I'm so grateful that this is recorded and that I'll be able to go back and listen to it over and over and over again, because I think there are a lot of nuggets and there are, there's so many ways that we can improve religious diplomacy, both in our interpersonal lives and in our community lives. And big ocean women like fight for that, fight for the equality, fight for love, fight for that religious biodiversity that can be just beautiful um, and that creates so much opportunity for growth um, for all that are a part of it. So Melissa, thank you for joining us. Carol, any ending comments, Melissa, any ending comments? Yeah, well, just thanks for having me. You're far too kind. Um, but I guess the, the thing that I... I've learned is that, um, you know, there's big holes and gaps in like my adequacy, but then when we live a rich life, especially lives connected to other people, in my case, through my faith, um, you know, the things that people have where they're full or where we're empty, you know, or the ways Mm -hmm. in which we're empty or the ways in which other people, wait, that's the same thing. The ways in which other people are empty and the ways (laughs) in which we're full. So, um, So that's like the beauty, I think, of like living a really messy life, a life of like a great glaring inadequacy. But if you live it with a lot of other people, then um, things even out a little bit and we can share what we have. Yeah, I love that. Love it. Listen there, that, that's, that's perfect. You're incredible, Melissa. You're an inspiration to us. Thank you so much for all that you do and who you are. Thanks for yep. having thank me. you. <laughs> Absolutely. So awesome. And thank you women for joining in on this podcast. Um, next week we are going to be, we'll be answering questions on faith from our mm-hmm. audience. 
And yeah. so we're going to be doing a big social media push over the next week, um, gaining questions and we will try to do the best we can in answering and being honest and forthright um, using big ocean tenants on how we can address some of the struggle, like true day-to-day struggles that we can face as women of faith um, who believe in God. So that'll be the following week. And then the following week will be the Genesis story. So we are excited to have you continue joining us. Feel free to like the podcast. If you join it, um, go follow Melissa, Melissa, you're releasing a book in the next couple of weeks. Do you want to take a small moment and just talk about that? So our audience can get more connected with you. Um, this book is called every needful thing essays on the life of the mind and heart, and it features scholars. Um, they all happen to be Latter-day Saints, uh, members of my faith tradition, um, but scholars of faith who talk about how their faith has been instrumental in their work in the field of political science or mathematics or uh, botany, history, and so on. Um, so it's this idea that um, the life of faith and the life of the mind go together. They're not like opposed um, as they're often made out to be. And so it's really beautiful. It's being published by Deseret Book. So you can actually pre-order the book now, but it releases um, in early February. Awesome. And, and Valerie Hudson it. has an essay in this book. I saw that. Yeah, Valerie that Hudson from awesome. Holbrook is in there. You're in there. There's a lot of really cool, powerful feminine names in there and matrix. Oh, oh, right. Okay. So, so this, you, you notice that. So the, they, they happen to all be women, but, um, but I didn't know they were all women. I just saw that there were a lot of women in there. As <laughs> they, I, they I happen to all be women. <laughs> parcel of matriarchal power and understanding how women move through this world. So I'm just... that's awesome. Maybe that's my draw to big ocean, the draw to the matriarchal power, but yeah, there's some cool, feminine, powerful, internationally recognized matriarchal names in this book. So highly, highly recommended. I've already pre-ordered. Go pre-order yours through Desert Book. We'll have the link in the podcast notes. And yeah, thanks for joining us today, Melissa. Once again, our deepest heart great gratitude for you to be here. Um, we appreciate you taking the time to do this. And oh, my pleasure. we will hopefully be reaching out again and again and again to have you on here. So that's my hope. <laughs> Cool. So thank you you, ladies. And you have a wonderful day. See you. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to Currents, a podcast by Big Ocean Women. You can find us on the internet at bigoceanwomen.org, on Instagram, and on Facebook. We are each one powerful drop in a big ocean of change. Join us in one of our local chapters, Waves, or Women Achieving Vast Empowerment. Our music is First Rain by Ian Post. Editing and production is by Fifth East Productions. Please join us again next week for in-depth discussion about interesting ideas and about people who are trying to make a difference in their communities.